Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, December 3rd, and this is a weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this podcast or video is for informational purposes only. It's not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give you personal investment advice. Most of the things I discuss uh, are again, for informational purposes or what I'm doing in my own portfolio. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Uh, before I get started, a little bit of housekeeping. Um, the, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Anyways, let's move on. Okay. The, got this from Javier Blas this week off Twitter. Uh, he pointed this out uh, that in the last weeks, the we have record U.S. exports of petroleum products. I find this interesting because what it tells me is that uh, you know because of the situation with the war and the sanctions regimes have been put on, and how it's kind of overturned and upturned the uh, apple cart of the world energy markets it's kind of made a uh, opportunity for the U.S., right, to be that supplier of last resort. And uh, we see it. This is not just, it's crude oil and refined products exports. What I find interesting is, is that um, this is happening inside the context of, you know, five to 6% of the U.S.'s refined, refining capacity being closed after the pandemic or during the pandemic and not brought back online. Uh, but I think a lot of this is, you know, uh, discharges from the SPR that are exported. Um, people complain about that, but the fact of the matter remains that oil is pretty much fungible. So the intent was by the Biden regime administration was to add barrels to the market and, uh, you know, hopefully dampen the price increases that we saw uh, after the invasion which uh, I have to give them credit was uh, slightly successful, but however, that's not an inexhaustible resource. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, the one thing I wanted to point out here is even with all of these uh, products exports and crude oil exports, you know, we're not seeing drilling expanding like we have in the past, like we would see the, the, the supply response based on the price increases. So we haven't seen that. We've had some, yes, Rig, rig, rigs drilling are up, but uh, we'll just have to see based on the price, you know, where we're at here at this uh, $80 WTI, $85 Brent. Um, I find it fascinating because, um, you know, we have basically the EU's in a recession, really deep recession, probably heading for a depression if they don't change course. Uh, the U.S. is definitely in a recession, in my view. Um, I'm not an economist, but, you know, if you look at some of the PMIs that are coming out, what's happening in the housing market, I mean, none of the <clears throat> data points are, are uh, positive. I mean, you're, I'll show a slide later on here where the Chicago PMI came out this week. It's, it's at like 2008 or pandemic, you know, recession lows getting there. So that's not, that's not positive. And the same thing you see at other uh other fed bank reports the dallas fed bank pmi was down massively too so um it's going to be interesting to see you know even within the context of these economies uh that are in recession or 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 worse how uh oil prices have held up fairly well and I'm going to show a slide later on, you know, I mean, copper is at $3.95 a pound. This is amazing to me. So what I'm looking for forward going forward is, as we talked about in previous um, videos, is it now looks like that China is really moving towards uh, opening up. Uh, one of the things I saw was the local authorities in several places loosening um, restrictions, a, a big push for vaccination of older people, things of this nature. So I think that, you know, we're moving towards uh, in fits and starts, as I've said before in previous videos, but the 
the data and the information seems to be that the country's going to open up or re, or, or re, rescind the uh, a lot of the restrictive uh, policies that we've seen. Now, are we going to still see flare-ups and see things happen? Yes, like I said, it'll be in fits and starts. But you know, if you get sometime by early next year in a situation where that oil demand from China that's been down two to two and a half million barrels a day, that comes back, uh, that's going to be a big deal in this oil market. And uh, the other thing that I've seen is that, it, it, you know, as we see this recession develop in the U.S., and as we start to see, we've already seen, you know, the inflation rate is coming down. The components that were uh, the main it's not going to come back down to 2%, but I think we're going to get down to a point where the Fed's going to be able to pause, if you will. And it seems like uh, Mr. Powell is uh, moving in that direction. So a lot of things are coming together. And this recession or this, you know, around the world, if you will, uh, the China lockdowns, which caused the economy to suffer there, the EU self-imposed sanctions recession, and in the U.S., the recession we have here because of the fight against inflation, uh, really haven't nuked commodity prices like you would seen in previous cycles. And that's telling because if we turn the monetary spigots back on in the U.S. at some point early next year, if China loosens restrictions and its economy starts to come back, um, we it's playing into the thesis that we've said all along, you know, this is not going to be this commodity bull market that we're going to see this decade that we're in, in my view, currently is not a demand driven event. It's going to be a lack of supply. And so, like I said, I mean, you're in a, you're in a uh, acknowledged recessions and probably three of the major economic blocks in the world and copper's at 395 a pound. It's extraordinary. So I wanted to talk about this. Uh, I follow this uh, Global Warming Policy Foundation. I started following it when I um, after I interviewed Dr. Michael Kelly. Uh, he's part of this organization. There's another guy that whose blog I follow here in the U.S. His name's Francis Menton. He's a retired uh, attorney in New York City. His blog is called The Manhattan Contrarian, and he writes a lot about uh, energy renewable energy policy, all these things, and shows the inconsistencies in the in the uh, planning, if you will. And he just wrote a like 35 page paper for the uh, Global Warming Policy Foundation about energy storage and how it's, you know, not with the current technology and the current material science, it's not going to be the panacea to the intermittent problem of renewables. And so here's a few uh, snippets. Uh, I'll put a link to the paper. I haven't read the whole thing. Uh, but like I said, I've followed his writings before. I think it's an important paper. I mean, uh, it's good to understand where we are in this because um, the market is not determining what energy sources we're going to use, where government fiat, government dictate is is doing this. And so it's good to understand where the falsehoods are or the uh, reality checks are, because that is actionable for investing. And if the materials that are needed are not available to accomplish what these folks, policymakers are trying to do, that's going to create a tremendous opportunity, right? That's why we. That's where we get this heads we win, tails we win more. You know, um, the whole renewable push is standing on the shoulders of fossil fuel, specifically diesel, and uh, that's just how it is. Uh, you're not. I've said this before. You cannot produce enough energy at these renewable places that would allow you to replicate themselves the energy returns are just not sufficient. So we went on that thing, on that side of the coin. The other side of the coin is because of the mining that's required, because of the transportation, because of the refining, because of the fabrication of these metals and materials that into these uh, rebuildables, as I call them, 
that tr that's a tremendous amount of fossil fuel energy. So the policymakers want to take us down this road and force it, then we will make a tremendous money, amount of money on that. And then conversely, not only does it stand the renewables build out stand on the shoulders of fossil fuels, but then the same politicians are doing everything they can to restrict the supply of fossil fuels. And that's, that's very actionable in my mind. I mean, tremendous amounts. This is pure speculation is looking at, this is a speculator's dream. Why? Because it's public policy that's incorrect, okay, is inserting itself into the market and creating distortions which can be taken advantage of. I guess that's the best way to put it. So anyways, a couple few snippets from the paper. I'll put a link to it. A new paper published by the Global Warming Policy Foundation warns that renewable energy policies being pursued around the world are unrealistic. That's because renewables-only grids require large amounts of electricity storage to make them viable. And we know why that is, is because the power is intermittent. However, the world currently lacks any power storage technology that is both affordable and scalable. Quote, the amount of storage required is very large, perhaps as much as two months of average demand. The cost then becomes absurd. You could spend all of your GDP on batteries every year and it would still not be enough. Hydrogen is better, but it is still astonishingly expensive because it's so inefficient. Despite this, policymakers are plowing ahead with deployment of wind and solar, hoping that scientists will come up with something to save the day. You know, as I've said before, uh, I don't doubt that, you know, the ascent of mankind from the lower left on the chart to the upper right continues. Uh, but there's nothing that I see on a near term horizon that's going to solve this problem. Uh, they're plowing ahead with, you know, and of, of course, there'll be somebody in the comment section will say, well, what, what about this? What about that? OK, that's fine. It works in a lab, commercialize it and get it up and running and scalable. That's what people want to see. And we don't see anything like that happening. All we see is lithium batteries and uh, that's just not going to cut it. So um, yet we're going to, as this last quote here says, which we've been saying all along is they're going to continue to plow ahead regardless of the fact that the materials don't exist or the technology for new material science doesn't exist. So Anyway, uh, it's a good paper. I've started reading part of it. I'll finish it this weekend. I'll put a link to it. Um, you know, this kind of information along with other people like Alex Epstein and Mark Mills, these kind of people. Uh, I mean, if you're a thinking person and you read these things, I mean, they're facts. Uh, this is how much X amount of material you have to mine to get this. And it's astonishing to me. I saw a poll on Twitter it kind of showed uh, different uh, subject matters or issues, if you will, or ideas, whatever you want to characterize it. And then it showed the support, uh, positive or negative overall, between people that consider themselves Republicans and people that consider themselves Democrats. And one of the uh, line items was mining. And of course, it was like plus 30% Republicans you know, we're for mining and Democrats, it was like minus three, three percent. OK, so you have the party that's mostly pushing for this transition for renewables that has a negative view towards mining, which is required to extract the materials and minerals that are necessary to allow for the transition. So this to me, these types of dichotomies, if you want to say, or absurdities, whatever, however you want to characterize it, are what makes these speculative and investment opportunities appear that are actionable for us. So uh, anyways, I'll put it there for your reading pleasure and you can take a look at it. So here, this is a little bit kind of cloudy. Uh, when I pulled it off, it's probably a copy of a copy. But anyways, uh, the slide, uh, without a revolution in store technology, we will run out of lithium before we are anywhere near the goals set by politicians. So this uh, red part of these graph is the amount of lithium that's been mined between 2015 and 2022. Then you start going up here. This is the times going out 2024, 25. You go all the way out to 2050 out here. And then you see like, you know, at 20. 52 or something like that or 
is that 32? I can't read it. Something like that. Anyways, you'll have to, more lithium will be needed in 2032 than was mined between 2015 and 2022. So you start seeing, it starts becoming exponential and the resources don't exist. So the bottom line is, is that, you know, we're making plans, we're making, we're turning by government dictate our economy, our energy policy towards something that's not achievable because it's limited by the resources. And that's why, you know, a lot of the lithium, lithium prices at like all time highs or close to, I haven't looked at it recently, but it's up there. The lithium miner stocks have done very well, but there simply isn't enough of this material. And that's just for the first cycle, right? Because the lithium battery doesn't last forever. And uh, so then you would have to go after the 10 years, eight to 10 years, whatever it is, life cycle of this battery, then you have to, you know, go to the next generation. So where do all these materials come from? Uh, again, somebody will say, well, we'll just recycle it, but there's no, like, they're working on that, but there's no profitable way to do it. So if you can't do it profitably, then you have to add it to the cost of the battery so that at the end of the life, somebody has to pay, right? Somebody has to recycle it. So, you know, and then as I showed before uh, in a previous video, maybe a couple of weeks ago, I put a paper up that shows the, how you actually recycle these things. It's a very dangerous process. Uh, it's very hazardous. There's a lot of volatile chemicals involved. It's, you know, and again, we're back to, we're trying to solve a problem, i.e. pollution, if you will, and creating more pollution and more negative environmental outcomes. And then people say, well, all these can be solved. Yes, but at what cost? Anything can be done. I said it, I've said it before at job sites that I've been on. People have said, well, we can do this, we can do that. I said, well, I can launch a spacecraft from this job site, put two men on the moon and recover them here. How much money would it cost though? Why would we do it? I mean, anything can be done. It's how much and who pays. And uh, so that's, you know, and the bottom line is in a, that's just not how economies work. If you impose all this high costs on it, then it, it, it's, it's going to cause all these other distortions. One distortion causes another distortion, then another policy is put in place to deal with that distortion, which you see how this works. And so it's, it's, it's I find it amusing that even all of this mining that needs to take place, um, I mean, it's funny here, you just look at this other vignette here, this is all just like the projections. If, if, if this is what, you know, we would uh, have to do for lithium mine, it says more lithium needed per month in 2040 than was mined in all of 2021. So there's just not, those mines are not on the radar screen. Nobody's building these mines. And uh, it's just not, the materials are just not there. You know, the, 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 there's a certain amount of minerals in the in the earth endowed, uh, and it's not going to be sufficient to do that. Now, I've heard some people say, well, this is part of the plan because they want to cost out the lower lower and middle classes out of transportation, everybody having their own car, that these things will be expensive, only the wealthy and, uh, you know, will have vehicular transportation. Everybody else will be, you know, riding buses or whatever public transportation that doesn't exist by the way you know it's funny because as james kunstler says we have a we've created a happy motoring society the united states economy the workforce is based on a automobile it's based on the automobile this happy motoring society so um yeah so i think that which cannot happen will not happen so again this creates opportunities because we're heading the entire West is heading down this path with no idea, you know, how we're going to get to the end goal without a map, without a plan. And it kind of like, that'd be like going into the wilderness. Like that guy, if you read that book, that kid that went into the wilderness in Alaska without a plan, without proper provisioning, without the proper training, and he ended up dying. So if you're going to head down into uncharted territory without a plan, without a map, without proper provisioning, it's probably not going to end well. But in the interim, as I said, for the purposes of investing and speculating, it's going to create a tremendous amount of opportunities. And so here's another 
big problem. This none of this can happen without copper. And we this is I love these kind of charts because this tells you what the problem is. You know, I said earlier in this video that the current copper price is three dollars and ninety five cents a pound. You know, I've mentioned this before, but you know, people like uh, excuse me, Goring and Rosenwag swag have said they expect, you know, there's no reason why copper couldn't get to $10 a pound this uh, decade. Why not? I mean, the, here's the problem, right? You're not, you don't have enough discovery. There's no new copper mines coming online. So you saw back, back in the day, 1990, 91, 92, this is the uh, copper major, you know, discoveries being made. Okay, so we're using up the copper that we found from previous discoveries and we're not finding new deposits to replace. And you see that the exploration budget has been down quite a bit uh, for, you know, again, here's another representation we've been talking about since about the last 10 years, copper uh, investing or investments into new exploration are have collapsed, right? They're cut in half. So this will need to come back considerably to find the new resources we need. You cannot have this electrification. You cannot have this transition without copper. And uh, there's not enough copper. That's the problem. And that's why I think copper is going to be a tremendous uh, investment because they're going to push forward with this. And it's, it's not going to, you, you don't have the material. And even if you did get copper to go to five, six, seven dollars a pound and stay there, it would take years for this for this to come back and for you to find the new mines. I mean, this this is pretty disturbing, okay? That over the last seven years, you virtually have had no major discoveries, okay, relative to what you've seen in the past. All the low-hanging fruit has been found, folks. All the easy stuff has been exploited. Okay, it's going to be more costly and more difficult to find and bring on new major supplies of copper. And that goes across the board, across the entire periodic table. And uh, so this is, again, something to watch. Uh, this, is, this, is the, this is the big problem. This is what's going to hinder this transition. So if you recall, one of the first things that uh, this new P prime minister in the UK, Rishi, little Rishi Sunak, another intellectual midget, uh, another, you know, global globalist, you know, executing the globalist plan, you know, agenda without thinking. Hey, guy doesn't think for himself. He's a ticket taker. He does what the ticket issuers tell him to do. Uh, so one of the first thing he did was, um, because of the high energy prices was declared that we were going to have a windfall profit tax. Now we warned, we suggested, uh, I'm not, it's not something hard to figure out that, you know, many economists, many other people said the same thing. If you, if, if you institute these, you're going to get less supply because there's no incentive for people to expend capital or put capital at risk if their returns are going to be limited. Uh, and in resource extractive industries, which are very highly cyclical, and that over a 10-year period, you need the 18 months or two-year period in that 10-year cycle of super profits to make up for all of the break-even and loss years that you have for the rest of the time. And if you restrict the ability of these companies to enjoy these super profits, then there's not going to be an incentive. They're going to husband cash they're going to pull back on spending on new exploration. Uh, and then as it's because of it's an extractive industry, supply goes down over time uh, as the resources are exploited and not replaced. And so this is what we're starting to see. This is the first example. It says uh, Total, which is a, the big French multinational oil company, pulls investment from North Sea in response to Sunak's windfall tax. I mean, it's only taken about you know five or six weeks. Here we are, this is the beginning. French oil giant, giant Total Energy has become the first major North Sea operator to cut investment as a direct result of Rishi Sunak's windfall tax. The 
57 billion euro company is to reduce planned spending on new wells by a quarter next year as the levy forces drilling businesses to re-examine their plans. Its decision will be regarded as a blow for the prime minister who said earlier this year that it was, quote, vital we encourage continued investment by the oil and gas industry in the North Sea, unquote, to help protect energy security from competing foreign powers. You don't do that by putting disincentives in place. You see, you know, I'm not going to sit here and bag on the politicians. They, they're not smart people. They're just there. Uh, okay. They put these people, these people are placed into power. This guy was not voted in. Okay. Uh, by the people of the UK, the UK, what, what recourse do the people in the UK have? I mean, you almost have to start another party. That's very difficult, expensive, and time consuming. That party would then probably most likely be co-opted. So what's the, what's, how do you get out of this? Well, as I've said before, it's kind of has to be like Sri Lanka. You have to literally go in there. The mob has to go in and burn it down. I mean, that's the only way it's really going to change. Otherwise, you're just going to continue suffering these idiots that are, you know, they've got you into this situation with a major energy supplier for Europe uh, that you've wedded yourself to over the last previous decades, you sanctioned against. And now you don't have the energy that you need. And then you you have resources. I mean, Europe has a tremendous amount of shale gas potential. So does the UK. UK still has tremendous amounts of potential in the North Sea. And then you put disincentives in place. Even though you say yourself in this quote here, that it's vital we encourage continued investment by the oil and gas industry in the North Sea. So this is actionable. This is why I am continue to be bullish on oil and gas. Um, until these people change their views and change their policies, you have to stay long. Will it be volatile? Yes. Uh, but I mean, this is every day that goes by, every barrel that's pumped out of the ground that's not replaced sets the stage for higher prices. And that's what we have. Companies are not going to. So what's next? You're going to force them to go out and drill? I mean, what, I don't understand what, what the policies are. Now, the question would be to me is, is uh, well, is this going to affect offshore? Uh, don't worry about the offshore industry. The offshore industry is going to boom. You have to remember it is so it shrank so much that we do not need, you know, tremendous amount of capital to come in like in previous cycles to cause a boom. Okay. It's going to boom because it's so much smaller than it was before. So even if a reduced amount of capital comes in, it will do fine. And it's not like they're going to completely abandon the North Sea. They're going to cut, cut by 25%. But still, that's going in the wrong direction. All right. But this is an example. It didn't take long. Five, four or five weeks, I think he's been there. And right off the bat. So how do you square? So when you hear him say that it's, it's vital, we encourage continued investment by the oil and gas industry in the North Sea. And then they put policies in place to disincentivize that. I mean, this is not a serious person. He's either dumb. He's running a, running a plan, an agenda. He's just disingenuous. I mean, the guy does not belong. I mean, those are criteria right there. Any one of those. I mean, you tell me what the other. Uh, you're either dumb. You're running a you're running a, a plan, okay, or you're just being disingenuous, okay. So, I don't know. I will say this though that you know the Conservative Party, if they had an election in the UK, would be thrown out. But then what do you get? You get Labour, and there's no. Again, you have intellectual midgets and dwarfs on that side. So what's the plan? Continue doing, continue the status quo and, you know, increase spending and give more money away, give more subsidies to people. I mean, this is not a long-term plan for success. This is not a long-term energy policy. I mean, I have to give Liz Truss credit at least. She didn't impress me very much, but she at least recognized the problem and was trying to articulate a energy policy. Uh, and, you know, but... This guy's just, I don't know, flailing around because these are not real, you know, in-depth thinkers or people that are interested in solving problems. They're interested in maintaining their power and maneuvering for the next election and saying what they need to say and doing what they need to do in the, in the short term. And short term is not going to solve long-term problems. Short-term thinking doesn't serve long-term problems. And none of these people are incentivized because of the election cycle. Excuse me uh to to do this 
it's just that simple. So this is why I'm bullish over this decade for energy. Meanwhile, in Mr. Sunak's Wonderland, the cost of living is so high that people in Cardiff, I mean, this is from the BBC headline, are eating pet food to survive. And uh, you can look this up, or at least in Wales. Uh, you know, we used to say that in the US, we would see people, we would see people, you know, old, we hear the stories about old people eating pet food and things like that, trying to survive because they didn't have any money. I mean, this is, you know, a government primary, primarily should exist to make the lives of its people better, not worse. And so when a government is consistently making its majority of its people's lives worse through its short-sighted and basically stupid policies, then does it have a legitimate, you know, right to be in power? I mean, you have to ask yourself this. So again, it's not just in the UK, it's all over Europe, it's in the US. How do you get out of this? The majority of people, you know, are suffering, but how do you get out of it? You're gonna have you're gonna have an election, you're gonna vote your way out of it? I don't think so. So we'll see. But uh as I've said before, um, this is more gets into more philosophical discussions about the decline of the West and everything. I I just think this is these vignettes, you're gonna see more of this type type of stuff. And most people are hoping that, you know, like I've said before, that they're the last gazelle at the waterhole that gets eaten. They don't really, they just hunker down and hope that, you know, it doesn't happen to them. So we had this uh, proposal, if you will, or the Biden administration is going to allow Chevron, which still has some operations in Venezuela, to start bringing crude from Venezuela to the U.S., uh, Actually, the Venezuelan crude's very perspective for refining along the Gulf Coast refineries. They're set up for this type of crude. So this is helpful. But the problem is, is it's not going to solve the long-term issue simply because of the fact that the Venezuelan oil industry has been completely and utterly destroyed from years of mismanagement, lack of it, not even underinvestment, lack of investment, and basically just theft, corruption, it's just a total mess. It's funny because Venezuela actually has, I think, the biggest, the largest oil reserves in the world, something like 300 billion barrels of oil. Um, obviously, it's a lower quality heavy crude, but regardless, uh, it has that. And at one time, it was a major producer and exporter, and you see what has happened. I'm not going to get into a uh, speech about why that is. It's obvious why. But I thought it's interesting. Don't count on it being the savior of the world. Why? This is from a uh, Venezuelan economist. Venezuela can't contribute much. Its oil industry is destroyed, said Jose Toro Hardy, a Venezuelan economist. By his figuring, it would take about $250 billion of investment in seven to eight years to bring Venezuela's production back to 3.5 million barrels seen in 1998. That's how far... That's before the Bolivarian revolution of um, Mr. Maduro and Mr. Uh, Chavez, uh, which uh, you know destroyed the economy there. But it shows you how fast an, uh, a golden goose can be killed. And uh, now it would take years and hundreds of billions of dollars of investment. Where, where would that investment come from? Who in their right mind would make that kind of investment in a place like that? Uh, with you, when you always have the sort of Damocles over your head that the government's going to expropriate your property or steal your profits. So yes, Chevron will, you know, fiddle, fuddle around and, you know, export some oil, maybe slowly over time increase, but I don't see them making major billions of dollars of investments down there uh, when they've already, you know, went through the last 15, 20 years of nonsense with the, with this government down there. But I think it's instructive for investors and speculators in energy that this administration, again, talks out of both sides of its mouth. We spent the last 20 years sanctioning this country, Venezuela, demonizing it, trying to overthrow the government down there. 
And uh, now we're, you know, keep it off the front page, keep it kind of quiet, but uh, hey, can you give us some more oil? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, anybody that has any confidence in the political class, I think at this point, you're, you, you have to be ch almost childlike in your, in your thinking. Uh, I have zero confidence in any of these people to solve any problems. And so this is just another example, right? You spent 20 years, how many billions of dollars in nonsense trying to overthrow the government down there. And now you're going to them asking them for relief. That tells me that, you know, you need the oil. And uh, we're heading, like I said, we're heading for an energy crisis. I see that once... Once the Fed pivots, once all these governments start printing money again to try to save their economies, uh, and once China comes back, I mean, like I said, we could see a swing in oil demand of three to four million barrels, maybe five million barrels by next year. Uh, and we don't have, we haven't made the investments. That's how we're going to see, I think, you know, well over $100 a barrel. And I think potentially before this decade's over in all time, probably in the next several years, and I run to all time new highs. So uh, this is kind of good, right? Because we like cash because uh, when you're investing, you're investing in a business to have a claim to the future cash flows of that business. And so here's the uh, a chart for the S&P 500 energy sector free cash flow yield. And you can see over the last year or so, because of the uh, uh, recovery in oil prices, uh, we've had like 20-year highs in free cash flow yield. And so free cash flow can be used for many things, right? It can be used to uh, make additional investments in new uh, oil and gas reserves and production, which their companies are not doing because they're being demonized by the various governments around the world. And the shareholders want, we went over this last week with Gorin and Rosenzweig's uh, Q3 report where they talked about that, right? The three things, governments demonizing the oil companies, investors wanting a return on capital, and then the internal constituencies in the oil companies themselves. So, you know, we've had prices come off recently, but uh, I'm not going to sit here and predict prices. You know, we're probably in a range right now between 80 and 90 something, uh, unless the economy continues to just deteriorate into a full blown, you know, severe, deep recession uh, in the US. But uh, otherwise, you know, maybe, you know, like I said before, it's not necessarily a demand driven situation. It's more of a supply driven. And these free cash flows are, uh, are being demanded by investors as payouts via dividends and share buybacks. So anyways, I wanted to point that out that yes, prices have come off. So we'll probably see this shrink a little bit, but uh, again, um, typically you would see if in a, in a real market, free market, a lot of these cash flows will be recycled into new production, new reserves, but that's not gonna happen because of the demonization of this industry by the political elites. So again, no one's really talking about tankers. Uh, they're booming. The tanker markets are booming. And one of the main, it basically took off after the invasion and the sanctioning uh, that happened uh, after the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which has changed the whole dynamic, right? So if you're in Europe and you're not going to buy crude from Russia anymore that was coming via pipeline, then you have to bring it from other places. Remember, we talked about at the start of this presentation how petroleum products <coughs> were making all-time record highs, petroleum exports from the U.S., both refined products and crude oil. Well, if you were originally getting your crude and diesel in Europe from Russia via pipeline or short trips on tankers from uh, the Baltic Sea into Northern Europe, that's a short distance. Now you've increased the distances, right? From the Middle East, from the United States. Look, so ton mile demand, move more product and or longer distances. This is the thesis, okay? 
And so it'll be interesting to me because I think the crude ban goes, the European crude ban for Russian oil goes into effect Monday. Not ban, uh, price cap, whatever. I don't have an opinion. I don't really know what will happen. Uh, I'm not a game theorist, but I think that, you know, what we're seeing in the tanker markets is these super extraordinary rates for both product and dirty tankers. As a matter of fact, there's been quite a few clean tankers and clean tankers carry fine products like uh, gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. Uh, they've converted those over to carrying crude oil, which is not a decision taken lightly because once you put crude oil into a clean tanker hold, or void, then getting it back, if you want to bring it back to carrying clean products, there's an extensive amount of uh, work cleaning and certification that has to take place. So basically, you have to move more product longer distances, and the tanker fleet is not in a position to grow over at least the next several years. Because most of the shipyards are already booked up with container ships and other types of vessels. So getting new tankers built is something that's going to happen possibly out at 2025, 26 timeframe. Now, do I have any doubt in my mind that if there's a period of extraordinary cash flows and profits to tanker companies that they won't build more tankers? Absolutely. Because that's just, you know, a lot of times what they've done in the past. Um, and so in the interim though, at least over the next year to year and a half, um, as long as this situation with Ukraine and Russia is not resolved and these sanctions and all of these other things that are going on that have changed all these trade routes, I, I, I see, you know, I see boom times for tanker companies and not a lot of people are still not talking about it. So this is good. That hasn't drawn a lot of attention from the tourist class but uh we'll see what happens uh like i said this really nothing was really happening. you can see the almost if you go look at a chart a lot of the tanker companies or rates and it's almost at the day of the invasion they started moving up because the anticipation of what was going to happen especially when sanctions were discussed and now that we have this going on they were just going to like i said the governments have done this this is you know imposed by governments onto a market that was working, right? So the market on its own found the best trade routes, found the best way to transport oil and products at the cheapest uh, rates as quickly as possible. It got as efficient as it could. And then the government comes in and upsets that apple cart. And this is what you end up with, right? And it, as a matter of fact, it's kind of funny. I didn't mention this earlier, but the president of France, Mr. Macron, has was complaining to Mr. Biden uh, about the fact that you know the EU is suffering under all of the uh, because of the sanctions regime that it placed on Russia, and the beneficiary seems to be the United States. I mean, I showed you the <laughs> record exports of petroleum; a lot of it's going to Europe, um, and then the fact that a lot of manufacturing now is talking about leaving Europe because of high energy costs and moving where to the US. So um, I think that realization is starting to set in maybe a little bit in Europe that they got rug pulled on this deal. Again, we go back to what I've said before, the purpose of the hegemon, the pur purpose of these institutions like NATO And these other U.S.-led institutions is to maintain the hegemon. And specifically in Europe, if you want to talk about Europe, you know, is to keep the United States in Europe. That's what NATO is there for, to do. Keep the United States in Europe, keep Russia out of Europe, and keep Germany down, and uh, or all of Europe down. So that it's accomplishing its goal. And uh, the natural relationship is between, as I stated before, uh, the EU and Germany, and specifically with Russia. And that's been something that, the Atlanticist hegemon, the Anglo hegemon has tried to uh, keep from happening for many, many decades. So apparently it's successful, but for the point of view of tankers, uh, I think it's uh, 
we're, I'm still bullish on them. And, uh, you know, the cash flows are extraordinary. I mean, you have operating, operating day, operating rate of like $20,000 a day for like one of these long range clean tankers. And they're getting on some of the vessels, 50, 60, $70,000 a day. So this is tremendous cash flows and margins. So I wanted to point this out. I did notice this when I put the chart up afterwards and was reviewing the charts. It doesn't show the 2008 financial crisis drop. So I'm curious why they didn't do that. Maybe that was a faster slowdown. I don't know. Anyways, I still think this is instructive. These are previous housing slowdowns that are graphed here. And you will see that uh, this is 2022. Uh, which one of these is not like the others? This is not good. Again, it's going to provide a, an excellent opportunity if you have cash down the line once the rates cycle, rate raising cycle is over with because these prices are going to get crushed and it doesn't fix the fact that we do have a housing shortage in the U.S. We have um, less houses than we need by like, quite a bit. I mean, since the great financial crisis, that's one of the things that people have talked about is the fact that family formation uh, among millennials and things like that uh, have caused this tremendous amount, this cohort of people that needs housing, that wants to move out of apartments and townhouses into a house, but there's been an insufficient amount of houses. And the problem was because you had record low interest rates, it forced the prices up, right? Because the speculative juices were flowing. Housing prices price a lot of these people out. And so I think that uh, uh, when we see the culmination of these high rates, rate raising cycle, and this thing rolls over, because let's be quite frank, the economy is slowing down massively. I just, you know, you talk, you want to look at whatever you want to look at, PMIs, the data I'm looking at. I'm not an economist, but if you look at, it's pattern recognition, right? If we're down at P PMI levels, that we've saw during the 2000 recession, 2008 recession, and the pandemic lows, I mean, the PMIs are in free fall towards those, then you can figure out what's gonna happen. It shouldn't be that hard, we're in a recession. And so it's probably gonna get worse. Um, and I'm not gonna sit here and argue about, well, I don't know about all that. All I know is demand is, is, is falling, prices are falling, okay? Go on, you can go, go into your market, on Zillow and look around and you'll see price cuts all over the place for, for most of these markets. And so I think it's going to be a tremendous opportunity down the line uh, because of the fact that uh, people still need houses, right? People are still going to try to form families. They're still going to want to, you know, have their own house, all that stuff. So right now they're being priced out, but as these prices come down and then the Fed will be forced to cut rates, then we'll have the ability to buy theoretically, you know, assets at cheap price and then, you know, cyclical. But this is, this should, this is like eye-opening. You look at these things and you're like, okay, well, you know, you look at this, uh, this drop here, uh, 1994 or the 1999, that's around, around the, uh, you know, these were down 4%, five, the most nine or 10%. I mean, this is like, dropping below 20%. So um, these are single family home sales. This is unbelievable. I guess the reason they don't have the uh, drop during the pandemic is they're actually cutting rates. And this is, this is a change in existing sales during Fed hiking cycles. So that's why. But anyways, you, you see that this is extraordinarily uh, over the top or different than the previous rate raising cycles. And so here it is, here's the Chicago PMI. This is one off, uh, I was looking at the Dallas PMI, it's collapsing also, but you see the pandemic lows here, uh, you know, 30, between 30 and 35, you see the uh, 2008 great financial crisis, same thing, you see the 2000 tech wreck uh, down by 35. So if you think that, you know, the Fed's just going to continue raising rates into this. Uh, I, I think you're mistaken. Um, and I don't see how inflation, you know, stays high 
when you have the Fed contracting liquidity left and right and you have demand dropping off. It's just it's just not going to happen. The inflation rate data will be lagging, so it will take some time. And remember, we haven't even seen the full full effect of the previous rate increases. That takes anywhere from a year, around a year or so for that to work its way into the economy. So the, the, the rate raising cycle hasn't even had its full effect yet. And so what I'm suggesting is you're going to see maybe, you know, the Fed say 50, 50 basis points in December, and then discussion about maybe the next rate, the next meeting after that, maybe 25, and then a pause, if you will. And then that should be your clue what's going to happen. By then, these numbers are going to be horrible, right? So uh, we'll see. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. But uh, I mean, if you look at previous, <laughs> what were the financial conditions? What were the conditions around the economy uh, during the pandemic lows uh, when the PMI was down here? If you remember back to the great financial crisis or the tech wreck, I mean, these are like pretty bad. Uh, economic times. This is something I wanted to point out, and I think that uh, gold is sniffing out the fact, you know, markets always look ahead, you know, six months to a year. They're not backward looking, they're forward looking. And you're seeing gold and silver rallying pretty decently. Um, as I said before, uh, in previous videos, I have been buying a basket, nibbling away at a basket of junior explorers, really crapco companies. <clears throat> Excuse me. These are companies that uh, have uh, prospective properties that are have ongoing drilling and news flow. Um, these are not investments. They're highly speculative. People keep asking me, um, well, can you give us the names? I'm not going to give the names because it's so highly speculative. If you want to do it, then there's plenty of information out there, um, you know, to find out, you know, all these different juniors. There's 5,000 junior companies, but I try to stick with the companies that uh, have ongoing drilling programs on decent, you know, uh, prospective uh, areas or areas where there's been other fines. They're in a mining district, if you will. Um, they have managements that uh, have done this before that doesn't guarantee them success. But what I'm telling you is, is that in a rising gold market, which I think we're, we're entering because I think that the commodities and gold and silver are starting to sniff out that, you know, the monetary tightening is coming to an end. And that six months down the road or 12 months down the road, we're going to be in an easy, another easing cycle. And so they're already starting to sniff this out. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that the dollar has uh, been weak recently also. But I think this is instructive. You know, the I remember during the frenzy of the cryptocurrency craze that was, in my mind, you know, a direct manifestation of, you know, the central bank's liquidity orgy. Uh, I was still a proponent of buying gold. Uh, I hold physical bullion, a certain percentage as insurance. Um, I think that it is insurance against the malfeasance of central bankers. Um, these people are not your friends. They exist. This is the only reason a central bank exists. It's an inflation machine. It's there to create inflation. And I think this is instructive because this is a global central bank gold reserves have been growing since like, you know, 2000, since basically great financial crisis. Now, why is that? I don't know, but I think that this kind of ties into the whole uh, move from a unipolar world to a multipolar world. People do not want to hold U.S. treasuries, uh, people in the global south, people in the global east. We've seen announcements from many countries that they've sold down their or continue to sell down their U.S. treasury holdings. Uh, Russia's been a big seller of theirs or sold most of theirs. China's been selling theirs, not buying more. Uh, it's not something that's going to be completely actionable in the next year, but this is what we're moving to. And I think that you have to replace it with something. And one of the asset classes that 
central banks go back to is gold. And I remember, during, like I said, finished my thought earlier, I remember during the cryptocurrency frenzy that I mentioned gold, that I, I wasn't going, you know, yes, I dabbled, but, you know, gold was still, you know, that anchor, you know, that 5 to 10% anchor in a portfolio that acts as insurance, that physical bullion in your possession. And uh, it was mocked, laughed at. Other people that were pretty good investors. I remember Ray Dalio giving a speech when he said the same thing. He said that people should, for the same reason. And people in the crowd, I mean, this is a guy that's been a very successful hedge fund manager that's created, you know, billions of dollars in, in wealth. And there's these people are sitting there laughing when he said that. Well, I mean, who's laughing now? Central banks are not laughing. They see value there. And as an asset class for their reserves, you know, as we move to this multipolar world, you're not going to want to be in a situation where you're holding U.S. treasuries or you're holding assets in the, in, in, in the other with the hegemon because they have demonstrated they are not a good partner. They will sell you out. They will confiscate your property. They will do the things that they purport are wrong to do that when they do it when are correct to do when they do it, but if you do it, if you're wrong. And so I'm not going to get into a long convoluted discussion on that. It's a whole nother video that I'm thinking about doing, but this is important because you're going to see, I think this is uh, instructive of something. And I think something is happening in the precious metals markets. Now they're overbought here a lot of, you know, but again, they were so beaten down. I mean, some of the, you know, what I suggest people do if you're interested, you know, just buy like Caledonia Mining. It's a good company. It pays a good dividend. They're going to, they've expanded their mine. They've got other properties. They're bringing, you know, good companies like this. Don't be, but people want to, people want to swing for the fences. So if you want to get involved with the juniors, don't just buy, here's what people do. They buy one junior and then they fall in love with it and they follow all the message boards. They know every single piece of news that comes out, every rumor, every gossip, blah, 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 blah. And then they go on and on and on and on about it. Buy yourself a basket of five or 10 of these things. Take 10 grand and put $1,000 in each one, okay? And you don't have to do a ton of research on these things. Like I said, find companies that are in areas that have, that are in mining districts that have, where gold has been found before. Make sure they've got some cash, they've got drills turning, and they have some management that kind of knows what they're doing. And what's going to happen is if you have a gold bull market or running gold prices to new highs that, uh, you know, some of these things will super perform, go up a thousand percent. Some of them will go up a few hundred percent and some of them will go out of business, but overall you'll have a, a decent return. But don't get wedded to one company. That's what happens. If somebody goes out and finds some promoted junior they saw somewhere. Cause there's a lot of promotion in this business and then they buy it and then they constantly harass everybody about how wonderful the company is, no matter what the company does, no matter what the news is. And that's just not the way to do this. You, these things are trading sardines. They are burning matches. Buy a basket of them if you think that we are going to have higher gold prices in the next year or so. And then understand that some of these things are going to rocket and some of them are going to get cut in half. That's just how, how it works. That would be my suggestion. And I'm not going to give the names because it's just too speculative. And then, you know, it's nonstop questions from the, the bleacher bums about, well, why didn't this happen? You said this. I'm not doing it. Okay. I give you advice to buy. If you want to invest, then you should buy companies that are mining and pay a dividend and have prospects. But those are far, you know, far, far and fair between however you say it. Okay. And, uh, if you want to mess around with the juniors, remember they're trading sardines and it's highly speculative. So that would be my advice. So I wanted to point this out in closing. Um, I think it's extraordinary, you know, the situation with this war in Ukraine, a lot of people accuse me of being a bot. I'm just looking at things from the perspective of what's factual. And, you know, the plan A of the hegemon was that when the war started, they were going to impose these economic sanctions, the hegemon being the U.S. and the EU on Russia. And it was going to crush the Russian economy so bad that the people would rise up and overthrow the regime. 
that was plan A. Well, that hasn't worked, unfortunately. And so we're in a situation where the sanctions that have been placed on Russia have now caused a boomerang effect. And the people that are actually suffering are the people in Europe, Western Europe, that placed the sanctions. So we have this, uh, we talk about PMI, right? Purchasing Managers Index. It's an indication of what's happening uh, economically, right? And so we have extraordinary Russian PMI results, 53.2 in November, the strongest expansion in five years. Russian firms getting new orders, hiring staff, investing in production versus the EU at 47, contraction and average PMI. So uh, just to remind folks, uh, a reading over 50 is expansion, a reading under 50 is contraction. By this measure, sanctions more damage EU than Russia. So, I mean, of, of course, people will say, where are you getting these numbers? They're made up, blah, 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 blah. Okay whatever. I mean, what we've seen, though, I think, is the exposure of the hegemon's misanalysis, okay, wrong analysis of what was going to happen. And then no, uh, no plan B. Plan B was then flood the place with weapons and bleed Russia dry. So um, maybe that'll work. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and uh, but right now, plan A of destroying the Russian economy didn't work. And so we'll see what happens. You know, uh, we I don't see reports of people eating cat food in Russia. Now, I can show you videos from other sites where, you know, out in the provinces and stuff, people have always been poor. Yes. But overall, the economy uh, is, uh, you know, if you want to go by PMI is, you know, Russian economy is an expansion. It's on a war footing. It's a war economy. You know, it's funny, you look at the, uh, what's happened like in Mariupol after the city was really severely damaged, destroyed, if you will, uh, after the big battle there. But there's plenty of uh, people that correspond that go down there on YouTube that places being rebuilt. There's new apartments going up, roads have been fixed, utilities have been turned back on. And so this is, you know, economic activity. The Russian economy is on a war footing. It, it is not a deindustrialized economy like the West is. And so now this is why you have reports coming from like the New York Times and stuff like that, where, you know, we don't, the United States and the EU don't have the ability to supply ammunition and munitions to the level, to the front, like the, the Russians do, because they did not, they do not have a deindustrialized economy. And so the U.S. does, the EU does, and they don't have the ability to ramp up for this type of warfare. Because I don't think that the policymakers, the people that pursued this policy, um, they didn't think this was going to go on this long. And I think they were mistaken. So anyways, I wanted to point this out. Uh, it's kind of an interesting fact. We'll see how things go on. I'm going to make some other videos. I'll put them on Rumble. I'm going to probably work on a video tomorrow about more about... Uh, a lot of people like to take shots at me in the comments about some of my predictions, but I'll make a video, put it on Rumble. I won't put it on YouTube because I'll just get banned for the things that I would say regarding this whole situation. But uh, look forward to that. I'll try to put that out tomorrow. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, one thing I want to make an announcement of is look forward for this. Uh, I'm currently writing the and I should put it out this weekend, the December issue of the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. And I'm going to go back to something I used to do when I had my original blog, which was every December I would, as a fun kind of exercise, because I know people like this, uh, people are looking for that shiny object and I would do it to increase you know, traffic to my site, but I'm gonna bring it back. Um, I'm going to write up in the December issue, a stock of the year, the stock of the year, uh, was a situation where I would propose a company, a very speculative company, a company that I thought had was at an inflection point that had the potential to double in the next year. So um, I'll be putting that out in the newsletter to my subscribers, and then I will probably announce it in a couple weeks publicly. Uh, so look forward for, to that. That's kind of a fun thing I used to do. And we were pretty successful with it. I think I was four years in a row, uh, we met our goal of uh, having the stock of the year double. And so we have a, uh, a company in mind. We'll be writing it up in the newsletter. And the reason I'm doing that is, yeah, I'm trying to uh, show you the type of 
speculations that we entertain in the actionable intelligence alert newsletter. I would say, I just want to make another housekeeping note. I finally remembered what my housekeeping note was. Um, we made a tremendous run in Schlumberger, which is the massive oil field services company. I've decided to sell that. Uh, that's not in the portfolio. That's just something I talked about publicly. I tried to tell people these public stocks that I talk about publicly. I like to tell people what I've done with them. I've sold it. Why did I sell it? Not because I think the business prospects of the company uh, are not, you know, haven't, haven't done well recently, but the company's shifting to this ESG thing again. Okay. They're taking their mind, they're taking their eyes off their prime uh, business, which is oil and gas, uh, oil field services. Okay. That's what they should be hundred percent focused on. Instead, the management's talking about the ESG and talking about, you know, things we can do in renewables. And all. I don't want them doing that. Okay. I don't want them. It was like, you know, back in the early eighties during the last energy crisis, late seventies, early eighties, a lot of the oil companies were getting into all kinds of things that had nothing to do with oil and gas exploration. So you had companies like Exxon or union carbide getting involved in uranium mining. I remember, uh, I think it was even Schlumberger got involved in a chip company, microchip company. These things have nothing to do with your core competency. If you're not going to stick to your core competency, then I'm going to move on to somebody, another company. There's plenty of other companies that will, because I don't want distractions. And I don't want, if I wanted to invest in ESG, I would invest in ESG. If you're not going to focus on that, I'm going to sell it. So I don't know what the prospects going forward are, but I'm not going to uh, want to own part of a business that's not focusing on what I, on their core competency. Um, I think we were up 150 or 160% in that holding. We did fairly well. That's a large cap company, but that's an example of catching something at an inflection point. You know, we talked about that buying that company like a year and a half ago. So we've done fairly well in that name. We sold it and we'll be looking to, uh, like I said, redeploy that cash. And again, look forward to in the next couple of weeks for an announcement publicly for the stock of the year 2023 with the goal of a double in 2023. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you.